When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to episode three of Secure the Insecure with me, Johnny Seifert. I just want to start by thanking you. Thank you for everyone who's downloaded my previous two episodes. Olivia Marcus talking about eating disorders and Lauren White talking about addiction. All I wanted was for people to feel comfortable to say, this happened to me. It's okay to not be okay. Now, on this episode, you're going to hear from Chris Wilde. Now, Chris has got a book called Damaged Out right now. It's all about how his dad passed away and he grew up in a foster home. You're going to hear his inspiring story, how he managed to turn his life around after seeing some horrific things. And then it's all about Blue. Yes, I like to bring you a celebrity each week as well. And this week it's Anthony Costa from Blue talking about his insecurity when it comes to food. So stay tuned for that. But first, Chris Wilde. And I started by asking him about his childhood. I lived a very normal working class life. Uh, I was brought up in Boothtown in Halifax, West Yorkshire. My mum worked in the shop. My dad was a stonemason. And me and my sister, yeah, we just lived a very normal life. Uh, we had one holiday a year, Christmas time. We all got together. And we did very kind of, you know, normal working class Yorkshire things. And one day, my dad came home. Um with chicken pox and within a space of three weeks he he passed away he died and then just like that you know my happy youth just turned black and white and um my mom she she moved on pretty quick and she met a very abusive man he was uh in comparison to my dad he was he was a, a manipulative evil uh bully uh, my dad was a genteel man very soft very sweet never shouted at my mom would never raise his hands the new man um would beat my mom daily and me and my sister had to witness that it was uh, traumatizing at the time, and because of that, my sister went to live with my grandparents, and I ended up living on the streets, um, gravitating towards other boys just like me who were a bit damaged, so to say. And before long, social services were, were called because I was on the streets at 11 years old, running up and down, I kept getting arrested, only for like trivial things at first, just for things like smashing windows and stuff, but still, at the time, social services had to get involved, and I was put into a children's home called Skirkit Lodge Children's Home. Okay, so let's go back yeah. to your mum's new boyfriend abusing her. Yeah. At 12 years old, you have gone to secondary school. You've got that mentality that you're a bit of an adult now and that yeah. whole front of, right, no one should treat my mum like that. I'm going to sort you out. Yeah. But then when it actually comes down to it, that fear of actually I can't speak up because I'm effectively a child still. Yeah. That line, when you saw your mum being abused, how helpless did you feel 
yeah, I felt like, you know, it, I think it's still one of the moments in my life where I felt paralyzed. I wanted to physically and, and uh, you know, emotionally help her, but I couldn't because I was powerless. I was still a young boy. You know, he, he was a big, strong man. He was aggressive. And I just felt paralyzed even to try and attempt. I mean, one time, you know, I did try and protect my mom and I got hit. And that just, just you know, deterred me from even trying to. And I, I think getting away from it, not even witnessing it, made me have a little bit more control over my own thoughts about it. Because when I was there, like you said, as, as a young man as well, you're going through that stage of life, puberty, uh, testosterone, adrenaline, uh, you know, and I was just powerless to do anything. And that for me has always been kind of a, a negative, you know, impact in my life, just not being able to protect my mom. So he punches you. Yeah. You go to school the next day with that black mark. Does no one say, okay, what's going on? No, um, I didn't go to school. Uh, I was at secondary school at the time, but I, I wasn't showing my emotions. You know, I was trying to, the bravado, I was trying to be the tough kid. Because if I went back to school and, and, and told people that this man had hit me, they were saying, well, come on, what are you going to do? you got to protect your mom. And I didn't want that. I was afraid. I was frightened even to mention anything because he, he installed that kind of fear. I remember him saying, if you say anything to anybody, then obviously your mom's going to get even more. And I didn't, I didn't want that. So I just kept quiet about it. And what about the fact that you were rejected by your father because he passed yeah. away? You were rejected by your mother because she was helpless to do anything for you. You were rejected by him for being him. You were rejected by your sister because she went off to live with your grandparents. You had yeah. that, so you didn't really have a support system. So what way did you look at society that everyone was against you at this yeah. moment? I rebelled. I, I hated it. I hated myself. I, you know, I, from an early age, I'd, I'd already made my mind up, but society was this thing coated in benevolence. It was a bad place. It was a lonely place. You know, these are the kind of thoughts and feelings you're not supposed to have at 11, 12 years old. You know, it's supposed to be a happy place, blue skies. For me, it wasn't. It had a, an adverse effect. I hate society. I hate authorities because they wouldn't help me. Um, you know, and I just became rebellious. And what happened? Um, I've, you know, I, when I got to that stage of life, I gravitated towards other people with the same thoughts and the same feelings. And going into the children's home, again, around, surrounded by people who've had the same experience as me, you just spiral out of control when you have that mentality. You know, I just kept getting involved in, in kind of more, uh, you know, serious crimes, uh, robbing people, robbing cars, getting involved in drugs at a very young age, 12, 13 years old, getting involved in some serious class A's. And is that through peer pressure that everyone's trying to... I mean, is there like, this is a role model and we're all trying to compete to be top dog here, to be, I'm the alpha male now and everyone, this is my house, I am look after it, you respect me? Yeah, kind of like that as well. But I think the, the elders in the house or the, on the streets and the people I was involved with, they took me under their wing. It was more of a respect thing. So I did it out of respect. You know, they wanted me to get on the drugs and do things. And I wanted to make them happy because they were protecting me at the time. These were the only people who were, weren't, you know, doing anything negative towards me. They believed in me. They gave me some kind of respect in a weird kind of way. Most of all, they made me feel wanted. And that's what I lacked at from such a young age. And, you know, they, they would reassure me every day they weren't going to leave me. And that's what I needed. That kind of, you know, that, that kind of love which I yearned for. 
did you know how to love though because did you ever feel that love growing up where you knew this is love this is my happy place yeah because even now at 39 if if i'm not in a right state of mind i'll remember like little moments with my dad playing football my dad because my, my dad was brought through the system my dad knew about abandonment he knew about insecurities he knew what it was like to be a lonely child so you know, I always go back to those times when my dad would just do, you know, come home from school and he'd say, let's go and play football. Or he'd just put his arm around me and, and reassure me. And those were like, you know, magical moments for me as a child. And, I, and that's the kind of thing which has kept me going and motivated me through all the bad experiences. I mean, I mean, sitting in front of you now, Chris, mm. you're so amazing and oh, a real success story. But it wasn't always like that, especially when you're in the care home. Like to think that 20 years later that you could tell your story and actually... Mm come out the other side was there any part in that camera you're like Do you know what i don't know if i can actually get through this oh yeah loads of times i mean i had a, i struggled all the way through my 20s you know it's, it's i can say this now because i feel but i'm in control of, of my demons you know and there was times where i just wanted to take my life i i really you know it was a really kind of uh bouncy feeling like a jovial feeling of happiness because i knew the inevitable thing for me was death for sure and I thought, well, I've made my mind up. I don't like life. Life doesn't like me. The only solution was to take my own life. And that kind of thing is always, it's like being a safety net for me. So if all else fails, you have death. And it's one of them things which has just kept coming up in my life. And, you know, because I didn't, I didn't, that's all I'd ever witnessed was doom and gloom. For me, that was security. Hey, if you fail, not, you know, get back up and work hard. If you fail, well, look on the bright side, you can kill yourself. And that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a horrid, horrible feeling to have. But I, I enjoyed that. It's interesting because I've just watched Afterlife with Ricky Gervais on Netflix. Mm. And yeah. that very much is about death. Yeah. And, you know, Ricky, uh, as his character Tony, getting into that position where, OK, I'm going to go and kill myself. Now I'm going to take the drugs. I'm going to walk into the scene and drown myself. But there is that line of hope or what, what what was that line for you of i'm not actually going to go through with it yeah good point um a very good point in fact johnny you know i every time i i've got to the edge the precipice of, of life and thought right this is it i'm going to do it these happy memories of my dad have always come up my dad was always my hero he still is you know he wasn't ever a footballer or, or a boxer or an actor it was my dad because my you know i, I watched how how arduous and how tough he had it but how he got up every morning to go to work and he came home and he he was just he had all the love in the world and respect for everyone and everyone loved him so every time i've got to that moment in my life where i thought this i can't carry on he he is subconsciously come up in my thoughts and saved me like a like, like a ghost like an apparition he's always there somehow it's amazing because yeah. he passed away when you were so young yeah. and the fact that that image has not tarnished and that image is still so relevant and prevalent to you now, yeah. uh, Masha, what an amazing man he is and obviously the amazing man that you've become because yeah. of him. Yeah. And uh, I, I, how do I put this? His job to you was to father you and show you how to be. And it's so sad that he passed away. But before he passed, he did his job. Hmm. He was able in no short amount of space those 11 years of your life it only took him 11 years to do a job to show you how to be yeah. as a man that you know what what you've just said i've never heard that before and it's, it's quite it's really emotional what you've just said that because i've never looked at it like that he did his job right oh you know when he died i was bitter uh, and still some points now in my life i think god you know why why did you leave me you say you love me you left me but you've just put it perfectly 
he did his job so therefore maybe you know he could go he it was right for him to pass uh he was a great guy he really was i mean you know everybody says their dad's the hero but for me he really wasn't and you know i and because of that i guess you know subconsciously i am a little bit of him and i look at my daughter now and i see i see my dad in her as well and so he's always there, like you said, he's always around me somehow, and he just keeps me going, he keeps me inspired every day. Who wasn't amazing was someone in the care system that you mm. called the beast in your yeah. book, and you speak quite a lot in your book for a good three chapters about the beast. So yeah. for those who haven't read Damaged yet, tell me about her. Yeah, so so Damaged, Skirkit Lodge Children's Home, which I can legally say now because it's not, it doesn't exist and everybody's been prosecuted or everybody's died who was involved. Uh, there was two people, there was uh, Mr. Phillips and there was the beast, um, so these were two people who were supposed to take care of you, look after you, nurture you. And, you know, what they did, basically, they, they abused children. I was one of those unlucky children. Uh, I was never sexually abused, but I was physically, very, very badly physically uh, abused by by this person I call the beast, Mr. Phillips. So we're talking about every day, you know, getting woke up with freezing cold water, um, getting woken up to, you know, cricket bat around your, your back or your legs and, you know, just that, living that like a methodical way and just being in, in, in sheer fear every day. Even if, like, you, you were buttering your toast and they were watching you and if you didn't get the button all the corners of the toast, you got a beating. And back then, remember, there was no Ofsted, there was no regulator, the police weren't interested because there was still that dichotomy between police and looked-after children. We were classed as scum. Parents didn't want us, authorities didn't want us. So, you know, we couldn't do anything about it. But that that's that's how it was for me. You know, that kind of atmosphere of just seeing frightened young people and these these people in positions of power who abuse their power beat, beat us. And not just that, you know, they did other things. One of the things I always talk about in the book, and it's something which has haunted me, is when I used to wake up during the night, and the two other boys who were in my bedroom, I used to wake up two or three o'clock in the morning to go to the toilet, and they were never there. And I never, I never thought anything about it until I started to do the research for the book. And I found out that these two young boys in my bedroom had taken their own lives because they were severely sexually abused by the same people running the care home. And one of the things which has bothered me uh, and still does a bit it haunts me is that that thing about guilt is how did i survive what why why wasn't i you know why, why was i so lucky just to kind of stop me from going crazy i think well you were lucky because you know you you had a good dad you had a good foundation it wasn't meant to be for you chris it wasn't meant to be like that for you but still for the hundreds of people who didn't survive and for hundreds of people who've gone on to suffer with you know severe mental health problems because of the pain and the sexual abuse they endured whilst in that surrounding in that care home the same one i was in the physical abuse that you got yeah. started obviously when you were 12 years old growing up then you get another load of physical abuse afterwards through the care system your answer might be that it's your father but what stopped you using that physical abuse as the norm, that it was normal to do it? Because that's all you knew, basically. Yes. Um, I don't know. I guess it's, you know, it's one of them... It's all about foundations, isn't it? I, 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 always, saw, I always saw physical abuse. I never saw it, remember, all my life. All I ever saw was my dad being a genteel man, loving, buying my mum flowers every week. I wasn't, you know, born into an environment of physical abuse. So it was all, for me, it was all very new. 
I knew what it was. I knew it was wrong. Um, so first witnessing that kind of abuse when my mum met this new man, it, it frightened the hell out of me. And, you know, I, I even remember being so young thinking, when I grow up, I'm never going to be around that. I'm never going to accept it. And I'm not going to be that person. He's always been my nemesis as my mum's uh, new boyfriend at the time because I looked at him as, as kind of like, you know, the thing... I hate the most in the world. What's the worst thing what could happen apart from killing myself is turning out to be like him. And that's why I've always pushed and pushed and I've always kind of, you know, even if I see physical abuse in any form, I know it's wrong and I try and put an end to it because it's not right. And I was lucky that I had that formidable love from such a young age to know this is not the way to live. And obviously you can now love now. You know what love is. You know yeah. the difference between right and wrong, which a lot of people don't. Do you know what I do? And I didn't know what it was for a long time. Um, I, I'm not ashamed to say this, but when I met my wife, all I've ever had, everything in my life's been negative. You know, my, from my dad dying, like I talked about, we talk about abandonment, is because the person I love more than anything will left me. So then all I've ever done in my life is force people away because if I fall in love with somebody, again, it's, you know, it's one of them, it's, everybody has this kind of feeling, but you, you're going to get hurt. And I just kind of, built this defense mechanism up but no one was going to love me and i was going to love no one and until i met my wife and even then the first two years of meeting my wife i i was horrible to her I, not in a physical way but i tried to force her away from me because i didn't want to get hurt again like i like i did when my dad died that feel of rejection that feel of rejection of course yeah you came out that other side you left that go home you built a life for yourself and as you said so many people never got the chance no. to do that oh, no. You are a success story to that care home, to the life you led, and you have used it for the power of good. A lot of yeah. people just go, I'm a success story, um, you know, two fingers up to society, you ruined me, I'm going to ruin you back. But you've done the complete opposite. You've yeah. gone back to the care system and trying to actually change it. Yeah, I mean, I, I embraced it, and that's the difference. You know, I had empathy, I never had sympathy. I didn't want anyone to have sympathy for me. I embraced my trauma. I embraced my experience. I thought, you know what? You know, I was one of the lucky ones. I'm still alive. I'm still here today to tell my story and to help other people. So I went back into the care system with, with that objective is to say, right, I know how the system is. I know I've seen the perils of the system. I know how bad it can be. I know how, how much of a negative impact it can have on a young person's life. So what I can do, what can realistically what can I do? I can use all my life experience to try and install a better system in which is I, I've done, I'm doing, and it's progressing. And the system is getting a little bit better. But that's always been my objective is to prevent an atrocity, to, to, to prevent anything what happened to me and all my friends back in the 80s and 90s. But then you bring out a book, you call it Damaged, mm. and then you think of your legacy and how you will be remembered. Yeah. Are you wearing that label as damaged as almost a badge of this is who I am? Does that define you? Yeah, it does because I'm not ashamed to say I'm broken, I'm, I'm damaged, I'm broken goods, whatever you want to put it. I'm not ashamed to say that and I say it to everybody. The problem with life is but nobody, you know, who everybody who suffers with severe abuse, they can't look in the mirror, they can't look at themselves and say, you know what, just, just come to terms but you are damaged. Damage is a way of life, you know, we're all a little bit damaged. You know, we might be damaged from, you know, mom and dad being divorced. Whatever it is, we all have our own personal trauma. But, you know, to to deter from it, to de de defy or deny it is wrong. 
and I've never been, I've never done that. You know, I'm always I'm confident and comfortable to say, yes, I have a problem. Yes, I do suffer with severe mental health occasionally. I get help. I'm damaged. I'm broken goods. But you know what? I own it. It doesn't own me anymore. It doesn't take over my thoughts, my feelings, or my life. And that, for me, is about success. But you're not damaged, mate. You've got no. a wife. You've got <laughs> yeah. kids. You've got yeah. people who love you, who would do yeah. go to the end of the world for you. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm a very lucky man. Um, but I'm damaged in a way... I'd put it this way: If you break your leg as a footballer, and you and and you know you carry on playing football, you're still going to have the trauma of that break and the scars and the scars. And that's when I talk about damage. That's what it, you know I, I refer to is the emotional damage. That's never going to be fixed. There's, you know the trauma I endured and the trauma I witnessed as a young man. It's always playing over. It's always you know it's like a constant film in my head or my body. It's visceral, but I don't I don't dwell on it no more. You know I, I've accepted it. So if we could put another chapter of your life now, yeah. what would you call it? Um, <laughs> a reversible. I don't know. I don't know what I'd call it. I'd probably call it, you know, uh, serendipity. That's a good word. It's a brilliant word. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> it just means I've been fortunate. I've been very lucky. You have been very lucky. My podcast, Secure the Insecure, is all about insecurities. Mm-hmm. Yours was the fear of abandonment. Yeah. How do you define that? Abandonment for me is the fear of, of people who I love leaving me. Of people um, not loving me back, being on my own, being isolated, being cold, being left in the dark. That for me is worse than having that dream of being dropped in the ocean in the middle of the night. You know, I've been alone, I don't like it. I don't ever want to be alone again. story from chris there if you want to see more of chris's story please get his book damaged it's out in all good bookshops now and it's a hard read it's a hard read but he is so inspiring as you've just heard now we're on to my next guest it's anthony costa from blue and he talks all about his insecurities with food but his insecurity really started once he got to the big time Obviously, being in a business now for nearly 20 years, um, at first, you don't realise that you have insecurities because obviously you're you're building towards that moment of, you know, becoming a, an actor or a singer or being in a boy band and stuff. And I think it's once you sort of hit big and everyone starts knowing your songs, then your insecurities start coming forward and people sort of judge you for what you look like, how you look, what clothes you're wearing and if you've got a nice hairstyle and X, Y and Z and you... At first, you sort of laugh it off, but then as you get older, you sort of realise, oh, maybe these people are thinking that. Maybe maybe that's what people are seeing me as. And I think I've, I've had to grow a lot of thick skin over the years. Um, you know, I've had a lot of battles with my weight problem, um, and it's just the way I was, just the way I am, you know. Um, I can't help it. Being from a Mediterranean background, it's, it's very hard to sort of say to your mum you know who like who used to like feeding you up you know a mum I'll just have a salad because she's going to think there's something wrong with you but uh, over the years I've had, as I said I've had to grow thick skin and, and it's just a case of knowing who, you, who your real friends are 
when you're in a boy band and there's four of you and there's four good looking guys that girls are obviously wanted to have the poster boy so a lot of competition between the four of you about who's going to be the alpha one in the band no there wasn't competition that's the weird and strangest thing it was never about competition I, I just wanted people to like me for me and a, a lot of people might think I'm Marmite you know they might think oh well, he's, the, he's the quiet one he doesn't really talk or he's the moody one I was moody because the insecurities I had you know you'd go on a TV show or a radio station and you know a radio person or a TV person would not want to speak to you and, and, it, and it was quite heartbreaking because you think well I've got something to say as well and it was nothing to do with the boys at all they were if anything we, we're like brothers and I wish I'd spoken out back then but I didn't and it's something that I sort of suffered with in, inside and I sort of started getting a bit anxious and a bit angry with myself and it just so happened that I didn't know I was going through it and obviously starting talking to you today you sort of, it's sort of coming back it's it's quite it's quite surreal it's it was my insecurity that I was building up inside I thought people didn't like me people didn't want me to talk people didn't want me to be around them you know being the it just you just can't help it that you you think you start thinking that and that wasn't me that wasn't the boy that grew up in northwest london the cheeky chappy you know outside you know i i had a cheeky chappy side but once I did that, then people would think, oh, he's being fake or he's too over the top. And then you start thinking, well, am I? I'm not. I'm just being me. And I just wanted people to like me for me, really. A couple of years ago um, in the news, and I might be completely wrong and outspoken by saying this, but there are big rumours that you'd all face bankruptcy, that there are big oh, money yeah. problems yeah, for all yeah, of you. Yeah. yeah, but do you know what? It is what it is. You know, the, people go bankrupt I think every day of the you know that, that are not in the public eye yes we went bankrupt it was stuff that we had to deal with and you know we've come out of the other side John um, you know I've got my health I've got my family and for me that's the main thing um, and I, there is light at the end of the tunnel for people that are going through what I or me and the boys went through there is light at the end of the tunnel you just got to ride with it I thought that you know the world was going to end and no one would everyone would hate us and that but no it was it was a complete opposite effect we come out at a time where there was money thrown at us there was management contracts that we had to sign had to do this and you didn't know what you were signing you know it was just it just so happens that it 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 did we did what we did and as i said we, we've come out the other side all smiles and and you know all healthy <laughs> it was we have to work now to pay the bills and to pay the debt off which we did and we we've come as i said we've done it all and now I see on my TV screen every night during Coronation Street and the adverts for the boiler. Yes, uh, mate, ideal boilers. That's all good. Lovely. <laughs> Amazing advert. <laughs> <laughs> so what's that like now? Because there is that thing of, uh, for example, Sean Williamson, uh, Barry from EastEnders, kind of got stereotyped into doing these type of adverts. What's it like to do a TV advert like that when you're an established... Yeah, I mean, do you know what? No one questions Harvey Keitel, you know, uh, an A-lister Hollywood actor or Kevin Bacon... He does the E adverts. He does the E adverts. You know, again, great actors. You know, sometimes if something's right for your product, you know, people wanted to use Blue as the product of enticing, you know, families to you to actually be savvy about their boilers. And it's had a really positive effect. And you know what? We're loving it. Brilliant. And what's next for you? What's next for me? Um, just about to go on tour with Rock of Ages. Um, I open in Eastbourne on the eighth of April, and I tour until the second of June. So I'm 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 all rehearsed up and can't wait to get on stage.
And that's it for another Secure the Insecure podcast. Thank you so much to Chris Wilde and Anthony Costa for joining me this week. Like it, rate it, subscribe to it and share it. I cannot make this podcast without your help. It's okay to not be okay. By giving it a rating, you're helping other people know about the podcast and feel comfortable to come forward and say, this has happened to me, I need to seek help. Remember, I'm not a doctor. All I am is a radio journalist and a storyteller. I've been Johnny Seifert and you've been listening to Secure the Insecure. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.